Tolkien's faith was so integral to everything that he did that as I began to do more research, I found that there was really no aspect of his life that was not in some way related to or shaped by his faith. Welcome to Knowing and Understanding C.S. Lewis YouTube channel. I'm William O'Flaherty. Returning to the show today is Holly Ordway for the first of a two-part interview about one of C.S. Lewis's friends, J.R.R. Tolkien. Releasing September 2nd, 2023 is Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography. Holly, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back. Well, now, the, the title of your book should be self-explanatory. However, let's make sure listeners understand you are primarily focusing on the spiritual side of Tolkien. So, uh, two-part questions to get things started. You know, why merely explore his faith? And secondly, why is it even important to be that narrow? Well, that's a great question to start with, because there's been this gigantic missing piece, really, in Tolkien biography. It's generally known that he's a Christian, uh, although, in fact, some people don't really realize that. Um, but there has been no real attention to what that meant to him, what he really believed, what it meant in his life. As I you know, was writing my, my previous book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, and looking in depth at the various biographies of Tolkien, um, I realized that on this subject, they're curiously hesitant. Humphrey Carpenter, in his authorized biography, does acknowledge the total importance, as he puts it, of Christianity for Tolkien. Absolutely correct. But then he, he frames it as being primarily an emotional attachment to his mother, Mabel, who died when he was 12. And the more I learned about Tolkien, the more I realized, you know, that is just not an adequate explanation for the deep, committed faith that he had throughout his whole life. Um, and also, you know, his attachment to his mother's faith could have gone some different ways. He he could have abandoned his childhood faith, in, for instance, during the Great War, as so many of his generation did. And then other biographers have tried to you know, compartmentalize his faith. There's, there's one biography by Raymond Edwards, which is very good, but he literally relegates Tolkien's faith to an appendix. It's literally compartmentalized. Mm. So there is no book length treatment of Tolkien's spirituality. And so there's a real gap. And so I set out to, to do that. And you know, as you may have observed, the, the book as it resulted is, is fairly substantial. It's, it's quite a large book because I found there was a lot to say. There was so much to write about because Tolkien's faith was so integral to everything that he did that as I began to do more research, I found that, that there was really no aspect of his life that was not in some way related to or shaped by his faith. And so although this is a spiritual biography, it's definitely a biography. You know, I, I follow him from, you know, from his birth to, to his death. And there's, there's a lot to say. It's been a very interesting journey. Right, yeah. And so, you know, even though you are being narrow, as I was, you know, kind of not, not really falsely setting up with that question, but as you were just noting, um, his faith, because it um, informed his whole life, you do include many things along the way, but you do clarify that you don't dive deep into those. That you're diving deep from the um, spiritual perspective or the uh, spiritual lens. But now, you know, given that your book is uh, so large, uh, including the um, 
uh, extra things, which we'll get to later. It's uh, 500 pages with um, great notes at the end, as well as at the end of the page, I'm trying to remember what they call those things. There's footnotes at the bottom of the page um, with little interesting side comments. And then there's end notes. Um, and this is something I did. I'm glad you mentioned this because I did this very deliberately. This is in one sense, very much a scholarly work. There's loads and loads of research that went into this. Um, and interested readers can trace all that in the end notes. And there's also a bibliography, which is something like 30 odd pages. But I wanted to make this readable as a narrative. It's a biography. It's a story of his life. So the book itself is not cluttered up with lots of references to where did I learn this? Where did I find this? There are the, you know, the little tiny little end note numbers that point you towards the end. If you want to find out where did I get this from? But if you just want to read on, you can just carry on smoothly reading the book as a, as a story, as his biography. Exactly. Yeah. So well, now with it being so large, I do appreciate the fact the how you arranged it. You have short chapters and then you have three major sections. And as noted, the extra stuff besides the um, end notes. And then I, I like the way that you do have meaningful footnotes to, to explain things uh, as you go along that people can go ahead and, and read. It's conveniently there. It's kind of the, the best of both worlds, having the, the footnotes and, and the end notes, and you have a good division there. But now, was that always the plan? Uh, that is, you know, why not do four or five parts or have longer chapters? Uh, how'd you come up with that structure? Well, it really emerged out of the material itself. You know, I did the research. I began you know, drafting and writing, and I tried to just sort of get a sense of the structure of, of his own life, you know, as, as a sort of narrative arc. And I found that it fell very naturally into these three sections, you know, the first beginning with his birth um, in 1892. And then I bring it all the way up to his, his marriage and right before he goes to, to fight in the Great War in 1916, because that's really, you know, a huge turning point in his life. He's now newly married and he's about to go to possible death in the Great War, which is, you know, as we know from, first of all, from John Garth's, you know, amazing biography, very important for, you know, for his imaginative life. And then we have this middle section from 1916 to where he ended it um, right, right before the publication of Lord of the Rings. And then the third section is the Lord of the Rings publication and after. And one of the reasons that I have a whole middle section sort of after the Great War, well, including the Great War, his war experiences, all the way through his academic life, his, you know, his development as a, you know, as an adult academic and as an adult writer. I think that so often people really just fast forward through this part of his life. They're excited about, you know, his 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 boyhood, where he's an orphan, that's very dramatic. He falls in love with Edith, etc. He goes off to the war, again, very obviously dramatic and exciting. And then they basically hop over this massive <laughs> chunk of his life to the Lord of the Rings. But that is published when he's 61. And so I thought to myself, wait a second. You know, he's writing the Lord of the Rings in his 50s as a mature man, a mature scholar, a father, a husband, a friend. And it's coming, this is his epic work, his masterwork. It's coming out of who he is. Well, how did he become who he is? What what was forming him? What was shaping him? And that's really what I look at in that middle section, because there's there's a lot going on, one of them being the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's you know, kind of big there. Yeah, just a bit. It's, it's the time when he meets C.S. Lewis and they become great friends. 
there's a lot that's going on in those middle years. And I really wanted to put them in their proper sequence and you know, chronologically and not just glance at them in passing, but say, no, no, wait, let's really go through what's happening in his life in these really, really important middle decades. And then when we get to the third part, you know, I, I pick up with the publication of the Lord of the Rings in 1952, take it to his death in 1973. At that point, I again found myself wanting to kind of challenge certain assumptions that people often have about Tolkien's later years. One of them is that the only thing he, that mattered was Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, that that was all he was doing, was answering fan letters for the Lord of the Rings. Now, it did take up a lot of his time, but he did other things. You know, for instance, you know, we'll talk about this later. You know, he, he translated the book of the Bible. Um, you know, he, he, had, he had many other friends. Uh, he did a lot of interesting things. And I also wanted to challenge the impression that in his elderly years, that he was just sort of sad and lonely and depressed and doing, you know, crossword puzzles instead of finishing the Silmarillion. Well, he had depressed moments. I mean, especially after his wife died, but even, you know, after his retirement, he was an academic. He retired. Of course, it's going to be a time of some, some difficulty, some sadness, some readjustment. But what really struck me as I did this research was again, seeing how dynamic these later decades were. He was making new friends. He was active in, you know, in writing and in engagement. He had just a much more interesting life in those last few decades than I had even realized. So I think setting up the, the three-part framing in this way, I'm hoping that it helps readers to get a better picture of the full sort of depth and complexity of his life. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I definitely think it uh, does. Like I say, I, I did enjoy that. Uh, we are uh, now actually recording here before the book is actually out, and I was able to get an advanced copy to help prepare for the interview, and so that that was great to have that opportunity, and then you know go through it and to, and to say yes, the way it was structured and what you were hoping for, or the the reasoning, I think it definitely does show, and, and it makes and it makes very good sense. But now, you know, let, let's go ahead and get into some content itself. It's such a huge book that we don't even, uh, we won't even possibly be able to like give away all of the different things that you, you share here. And so, in fact, I'm going to kind of pigeonhole you or narrow you down here. But, you know, let's, you know, first acknowledge that the, the first chapter provides an overview or somewhat introduction to the book. And then the remaining 13 chapters of this first division and covers, you know, uh, his life up to his uh, his early 20s. Go ahead and you know, tease out maybe some two or three major points or aspects of his life that you want the reader to uh, especially understand. Well, I think there are a couple of really interesting points about how many. Again, it's hard to pick my favorites, some, but I think one of the points that is really important in that first section is the fact that Tolkien was actually a Catholic convert. Um, he was baptized in the Church of England um, in the Anglican Cathedral in Bloemfontein, South Africa. And so he had his first eight years of his life as a member of the Church of England. And he would have remembered this. He had an astonishing memory to begin with. And, you know, he was a very bright boy. And then his father died when he was four. And his mother um, became a Catholic when he was eight. And so he was able to remember that shift and one of the really fascinating things that I learned is that Catholic practice at that time was that at eight years old, he was considered to be above the age of reason. And so he was not just kind of 
taken into the church alongside his, his mother, he was expected to make his own profession of the faith when he had his first Holy Communion and confirmation, which came later when he was um, 11, just about to be 12 years old. So he he was not actually a cradle Catholic. He, he, he had to make a step that was deliberate when he was about, you know, about to become 12 years old. And also, it was not by any means a, by a foregone conclusion that he would, because Catholicism at that time in England was very much socially disapproved of. It was absolutely the minority religion. It was culturally the not approved option. Um, so Mabel, in becoming a Catholic, incurred the extreme displeasure of all her relatives who cut off all financial support to her, causing them to be living in poverty. And she had to go from worshiping in these beautiful, you know, you know, Church of England churches to these kind of dingy and not very attractive Catholic churches because Catholics didn't have the resources to, to have these beautiful churches right then. Um, even, you know, the, the Birmingham Oratory, if people look at photos, what we see now, that beautiful big building with the dome and everything, that wasn't built until later. So when Mabel brought her voice to it, it was a very modest building, um, kind of ugly, in fact. She came there because it was a good community that would support her as a convert, because most of the Oratorian fathers were themselves Catholic converts. So they understood that journey and they knew how to help her. So I think just that awareness that, you know, he was part of a, of a, dis, a literally disenfranchised minority historically. Um, Catholics had been stripped of their civil rights after the Reformation, had only been restored, you know, in stages. There were still legal restrictions on Catholics, even into Tolkien's adulthood. So the family really wanted the boys to come back to be Anglicans again, would have rejoiced if Tolkien... As a, as a young man had said, no, no, I'm going to go back to the faith of my father, Arthur. So I think from the beginning, this underscores the intentionality of Tolkien as a Catholic, because he had a lot of, of pressure and you know, encouragement to return to the faith of his early childhood, to come back to the Church of England. And it really, in many ways, would have made his life easier if he had. But he didn't. And I think that's a really interesting point. And I try to unpack that in this first section. And I mean, I could go on. There are many other things I want to point out. But one, one thing that I also talk about in this section is the importance of those Oratorian fathers. Um, you know, Father Francis Morgan, Tolkien's guardian, is well known. He was his, his second father. He's, he looks after him um, after his mother dies. But I had not realized until I did this research that really Father Francis was part of a, of a community. There are about 20 Oratorian fathers at the Birmingham Oratory when Tolkien was a boy there. And he was friends with many of them and had you know, these mentoring relationships. And they were really important in his life. And Oratorian spirituality had a really huge impact on, on shaping Tolkien's faith and shaping his whole attitude towards life in a way that I think is hugely important. Hmm. Right. And uh, I was aware of how the fact that he was, you know, Catholic and how there was some discrimination or, you know, the, the, the situation in the family. But just like when for the first time uh, later as an adult, I was familiar with the Reformation, but to see on both sides all the just 
the, the misunderstandings, the hatred towards one another that was going on. So um, you did a, a great job in terms of, you know, painting a much clearer picture about this period in, 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 in his life and that it wasn't just, oh, you know, he, of course he was, you know, Catholic because his mom or whatever, but he could have made other choices and decisions. But uh, it, uh, that's not what he did. And uh, the, the environment, uh, the, that pressure shaped him. You, you, we never want people to go through extremely difficult times. But uh, oftentimes, uh, as they hold on to their, their faith, uh, they're able to uh, really accomplish great things and, and have uh, empathy and compassion uh, towards others. Exactly. And, you know, no, and knowing that it wasn't just, you know, a foregone conclusion that he, that he had, you know, pressure and he could have, could have abandoned his faith or, you know, could have abandoned his faith entirely, or he could have abandoned being a Catholic. I think it gives us more insight into, you know, the fact that he did stick with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let, let's go ahead and uh, you note in your book, and then I'll go ahead and, and get out in the open, the fact that you yourself are Catholic. I, I am not, and, and, and that's fine. We get along fine, uh, you know, it, it, things of that nature. But uh, it, it's, you know, it's very interesting in terms of how people will maybe like assume this or that or whatnot. But, um, you know, even though I'm, I'm not Catholic, I very much appreciated how you took the time to explain certain aspects that uh, Protestants wouldn't necessarily understand. And you did it, as you note at the beginning, that you're not trying to say, okay, you, you have to be Catholic like, um, like a Tolkien was. But this is here, a clear understanding and an explanation. And part of the extras is, is, um, uh, explains some of that, which we'll get into. But you did a very great job uh, with that. Well, I'm really pleased to hear you say that, William, because that was very much my aim. Um, as I say, right in the first chapter, I do share Tolkien's faith, and that has helped me get some insights into what he believed and what his experiences were, in the same way that the fact that I've spent so much time in Oxford over the last 15 years, likewise, gives me access to a kind of understanding of his life in Oxford that simply isn't available to somebody who's only seen pictures of it. I mean, I've actually worshipped in the churches that you know he, he worshipped in, things like that, walking down the same streets. So there is, in that sense, you know, I think my connection with Tolkien in terms of our faith has given me some additional insights, but I wanted to make it absolutely clear that I'm not writing from that perspective. My only aim here is to help the reader understand what Tolkien believed. Mm -hmm. I'm not endorsing his faith. I'm not critiquing his faith. Um, You know, I'm trying to just show, well, what, what did he believe? And you know, I have loads of Protestant friends and colleagues, and over the years, you know, many of them are huge Tolkien fans. And I'm realizing there's so much that Tolkien talks about in his letters. How would a non-Catholic have any idea what he means by adoration, you know, or assumption, you know, versus the ascension or well, these sorts of things? What, what on earth is benediction that he mentions in a, in a letter? How would you know? There'd be no reason for you to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. if, you, if you want to fully understand what Tolkien's saying, you need you need to know. So someone has to explain it. Um, so that was what I was setting out to do to say, okay, well, let's understand what Tolkien believed. And also, you know, there are so many fans of Tolkien's who are not Christians. And I also wanted to make it accessible to them as well. You know, so I also don't assume that the reader knows about Christianity. So I'm trying to again explain as possible, you know, okay, well, this is the basic concept. So we're all clear on this, 
not assuming anything um, and not assuming that the reader shares any aspect of my faith or my perspective, but really focusing on, okay, well, what, what was Tolkien's faith? And I, I think that's really helpful because even, you know, as a believer, I can find it sometimes a bit off-putting when I'm reading a book about Tolkien that all of a sudden, you know, it's being biographical and all of a sudden it sort of shifts into a more devotional mode. Like, wait, 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 mm -hmm. I want to read about Tolkien. Why are we, why are we getting, you know, there's a place for devotionals. There's a right. place for that. This is not that place. Say <laughs> <laughs> purely, you know, biographical treatment. And I, I think, I think it's enhanced by just sticking to that because his life is really exciting. It's interesting. Let's just stick with that and learn about who he was, where he was in his context. And then people can take it in whatever direction that they want to. But my, my task was to, to deliver the biography and to, to help people understand what it was that Tolkien believed. Well, then in that same spirit here, focusing in on chapters 15 through 28, that second part, this examines the, you know, as you said, the, the longest uh, span in Tolkien's life. And uh, it's up until just a few years before The Lord of the Rings was published. Now, given this covers nearly 40 years, I'll not limit you, uh, as I did a moment ago, but just ask you to provide however many brief highlights uh, from this period. Well, I think, you know, if we might say that the first part of his life really illustrates the way that his faith was hard won. Um, if he didn't, you know, he had many challenges to it. I think the second part of it really, well, confirms that hard won nature and also shows how really integral it was to his whole life. Because here, you know, to begin with, we, we get the Great War and he goes into the Great War as a strong Catholic and he comes out a strong Catholic. But that, again, we shouldn't take that for granted. A lot of people, you know, faced the suffering of the war and came out not being believers. Um, C.S. Lewis came into the Great War as an atheist and came out of the Great War as an atheist. You know, did, <laughs> you know, so I wanted to go into some detail there about, well, what was it about his faith that was, um, how did he get through it? How did he get through the Great War with his faith intact? And looking at, for instance, his great admiration and devotion for Mary, the mother of God, so he, for instance, writes a poem to her in the trenches um, under the title Consolatrix Afflictorum, meaning consoler of the afflicted. And I think that one of the things gives us a glimpse into the way that even at that relatively early stage in his life, he's kind of built some spiritual muscle with regard to facing suffering. He looks to Mary as an example and to looks to her for, for comfort, you know, that, okay, She's pointing to her son, you know, he's, she's pointing to Christ. She's giving him hope, you know, that the sun will rise again, even in the darkness of the trenches. But he's not shying away from acknowledging that darkness. But interestingly, it's after he comes out of the Great War, after he's demobilized, he goes through a barren patch in his faith. There's a long stretch, and we don't know exactly how long. It, it, the way Tolkien frames it, it could be just a couple of years. It could be as long as 10 years. He says there's a stretch in which, in his own words, he says, I almost ceased to practice my religion. And he's very forthright about this. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, we don't know. But it sounds like he was lapsing maybe in his prayer, and his devotional life. Something just wasn't clicking for him, it was a barren stretch and a sustained barren stretch. 
and one that was really hard and painful for him. And eventually, you know, he comes back to Oxford, takes up his professorship there, and he meets C.S. Lewis, and around that time, his faith starts to blossom again. Um, and it's renewed, it's strengthened, and he moves in, into a, a much stronger adult faith. And I, I find that really moving. You know, his faith was not just something that cruised along st- steadily throughout his whole life. Here we have a, a stretch where he's, he's really struggling. Um, and and he, he pulls out of it and then becomes really a, a role model to other Catholics at Oxford, uh, something I explore a fair bit, you know, looking at his academic vocation, the way that he's actually really very present and visible as a Catholic in Oxford in ways that have been almost totally overlooked, I think, by, by the scholarship. So I find that very interesting. Um, and then, you know, earlier when we were talking about the way that, you know, Catholicism was very much the, the minority religion, it was not socially approved. There's a lot of tensions between Catholics and non-Catholics, between Catholics and Protestants. And I think having that context helps us better appreciate the fact that Tolkien became great friends with C.S. Lewis. When right. Lewis Tolkien meet, Lewis is an atheist and Tolkien helps him to become a Christian. And of course, Lewis doesn't become a Catholic. He he rejoins the, you know, the, the Church of England. But Tolkien was not bothered by that. You know, he he had a recognition, you know, obviously he would have liked for Lewis to become a Catholic, um, but he had a recognition that Lewis was his brother in Christ. He speaks very warmly of how, you know, Lewis loves the Lord and that this is a grace that brings more graces. He speaks about how Lewis's friendship has done him good spiritually. And this is something kind of remarkable for that era. And we take it for granted. I trust you enjoy the first of a two-part interview with Holly Ordway about Tolkien's faith, a spiritual biography. Plans are to release the second part on September 11th, 2023. Again, I'm William O'Flaherty. My podcast, All About Jack, has been around for over 10 years. And on YouTube, my channel is called Knowing and Understanding C.S. Lewis. Be sure to check out my short feature called The Latest on C.S. Lewis that focuses on timely and timeless information. Check the description or show notes for links to items mentioned in the show today. Finally, everything I do related to Lewis is centralized at the website EssentialCSLewis.com. And in case you didn't know, I've written two Lewis-themed books. The misquotable C.S. Lewis was released in 2018. It examines 75 quotations credited to him that he either didn't write or paraphrases of something he did or without the context could be misunderstood. In 2016, my enhanced study guide to the Screwtape Letters came out. It's called C.S. Lewis Goes to Hell. Thanks again for listening, and please consider liking and sharing this episode with others. <laughs>